0: Hello and welcome back to new books in Native American Studies. This is Samantha Williams, one of your hosts, and today we're joined by Nache Bluebarn, author of Native Space, Geographic Strategies to Unsettle Settler Colonialism, published by the Oregon State University Press. This book explores how Native communities use signage, naming, cultural practices, and art to create their own spaces and geographies within settler societies. Native space examines these as everyday cultural practices and also examines how settler societies deploy the concept of Indianness to create colonial geographies. Dr. Barnd is an assistant professor of ethnic studies and Native American studies at Oregon State University, where he teaches courses on Native American studies, ethnohistory, and the environment. Nache, welcome and thank you for being here today.
1: Oh, thanks. my pleasure.
0: All right. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your research interests and your background?
1: Yeah. So um, I am trained as a comparative ethnic studies um, scholar, comparative and interdisciplinary ethnic studies scholar. Um, I have degrees, though, in both uh, ethnic studies, um, in American Indian studies, and in philosophy. Um, and so I think all of those things um, come together in my sort of very interdisciplinary approach to most of the questions that I have. Um, so my PhD was in um, ethnic studies from UC San Diego. <clears throat> and um, my work now really is kind of come around to race and space, um, indigenous geography, Um, cultural geography, although in this particular book, I use quite a few other kind of uh, methods and, and approaches.
0: Great. So for those who are unfamiliar with the idea of settler colonialism, which is one of the key concepts that you utilize throughout the book, can you explain what this term means and how it applies to Native American studies?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I like to say that most people in the U.S. and in other places like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, they actually know what settler colonialism is pretty well. Um, they know it because, you know, they, they know it by practice. They know it because they live it. Um, but it's, it's a distinction from a more traditional sense of colonialism where there was a, a colony established and that colony was were there mostly just to extract resources or or um, utilize labor of the folks who lived there, all for the benefit of some home country. Um, settler colonialism is different, obviously, in in the sense that uh, that the, those people that are extracting resources and labor in this case are also settling. They're actually moving. They're changing the demographic. They're changing the landscape. They're replacing um, the, the indigenous populations and. Um, and usually eliminating those those populations either directly or indirectly, or usually a combination of both of those things together, um, and so that's the main distinction. Is just that that sort of movement of, of bodies and the, then the, the resulting transformation of the, the the land and the culture and the peoples that were already there um, in a pretty massive um, in a pretty massive manner.
0: All right. So you've touched on this a little bit in your description there, but how then would you connect? Settler colonialism with geography and space, as it relates to native nations and settler societies.
1: Yeah. So, as I yeah as I as I mentioned, um, one of the key parts of settler colonialism is that there is this uh, what I call uh, this practice of submerging the indigenous, um, and that is both in terms of the the rhetoric and the uh, um, but also the actual physical demographic the population the people the culture so um, the space is, is transformed in so many ways um, by that by that settling process um, and it's also it also becomes then a frame by which you have to understand current geographies so um, the way that this nation is formed the way it looks the process of that transformation um, is is rooted in that process and that particular um, set of relations between a a group of people that are moving from one place to another, and all the changes that take place afterward um, so, yeah <clears throat> so i would I would add this one of the things I would say is that um, that also this is important that this is an ongoing this is something you think of as an ongoing practice it's not something that stopped. Um, I think normally when we think about if we do have an acknowledgement of that process of settling, um, we tend to think of it kind of ending at a certain point. Um, whether that be in the 1800s or earlier. And part of what I would argue here then is that settler colonialism is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing practice. Um, and then that that space of, that, that space still has to be produced and reproduced um, to, to look the way it does, to be understood in the way that it is in a large sense. Um, and you can see that in things like uh, there's these weird... Um, Moments where you can kind of see this kind of play out, where, like for example, if you think about treaties, which is this this agreement between tribal peoples or indigenous peoples and European settlers, uh, we now think of treaties as belonging to native peoples, right? As a, as if as if that is only about those remaining and re- and retained sort of reservation spaces, rather than those treaties really being about defining the totality of this 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 nation and this geography that has become um, the United States. Right. So those, that treaty, those treaties are about that space just as much as they are about reservation or native spaces. Um, so it's just kind of reframing to understand that that's how this is still about, you know, that it's still about that sort of process in terms of defining what this, what this land looks like, what the, the culture and the geography looks like.
0: So one of the things you, you, address really clearly in the book is settler colonialism is alive and well today throughout North America, throughout other settler societies around the world.
1: That was, that was one of the key things that I really wanted to make sure was clear. Um, and then also obviously, as you mentioned in the intro, just how then do native people sort of navigate that, um, if that's the if that's the the fact of the, of their existence that you have to navigate your own sort of spaces and geographies and practices within this this ongoing state
0: So to go back to the idea of, of space a little bit more. So, you know, you talk about the use of space by settler societies and indigenous peoples. And one of the interesting arguments that you make is that space is both a production and it is multiple. So can you explain what you mean by that? And then how this can sometimes lead to tensions between these two groups?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, I like to talk about production, um, space is a production space is a verb um, in cultural geography in particular when we talk about space it's not as if it's a um, an empty stage that's just laying out there in which we sort of act um, but rather everything that we engage with in terms of the, the world around is is a process of meaning making uh, we understand World through our lens, and then that lens that we that we sort of shape that world within reflects back to us. So it's this process. It's a verb. It's an ongoing. Um, it's a meaning making. Um, it's relational in that sense. <clears throat> so it both reflects and creates our identities um, as much as anything. Um, it's multiple in the sense that you know, as I kind of indicated, that it's a process. You have to continually sort of engage in that meaning making. Um, You have to have certain sets of beliefs or understandings that shape how you look at the world. And that means then um, if that's the case, then it's going to be contested at different places. It's going to overlap. There are going to be layers. That's not just, and this isn't just in the sort of individualized sense, but in the collective sense. Um, So you can point to something like, uh, okay, do you look at a land, let's say a, a forest or a waterway? Do you look at it as a resource? Do you look at it as a relation? you know, as a relative, as something that you're connected to, or is it just something that's extraction, you know, uh, that's uh, there for extraction or, or usage. Um, and so those frames really are about not just what is out in the world, but it's how you see what the world is, which is also a reflection of how you, which who, and what you are. And then that returns back. So in, in the practices of how you engage with that understanding uh, that also shapes then your identity. Do you understand yourself as having, Certain relations and responsibilities to those um, those lands or those waters or those animals or those particular um, spaces around you. So um, those are those are the ways in which that sort of process can get uh, create tension, though, because when you have two very different systems of of um, of space in operation, you know, typically there's you know it's who has the sort of power to enforce theirs as the more dominant, and that's exactly the scenario in which we're that I'm very interested in, and what happens. When that's when that's enforced in the US but then those layers and those contestations are still there those overlaps still remain even if they're hidden or if they're sort of buried underneath um, they're still very much practiced there's still I mean I work with uh, here quite a uh, quite a number of people um, on projects like this where where they are um, locally you know trying to continue their engagements and their relationships and responsibilities and and we're navigating how do you how do you do that in a space that no longer looks like it used to look but there are still those sort of connections that are there and that those that have that have been sustained over you know generations even though in this in the city space it it's easily invisible and it's easily forgotten by non-native people so
0: so one of the one of the ways you examine these expressions is through a really interesting study of street signs, um, which is something again that you know people might not think about because you see them every day. But you look at street signs as geographic markers, you know, which you are to use both as tools of hegemony by settler societies, but also as a way for native nations to sort of contest the dominant order so can you talk a little bit, bit a bit more about this and maybe use some examples to explain what you mean here
1: yeah sure and this is this is one of those weird you know my interdisciplinary training leads me to some weird things sometimes mm-hmm. but it, it, in ways that i found you know i've been compelled and sort of um intrigued by by for many many years now um so in my first two chapters as you kind of indicated are pair, are these paired chapters where i'm looking at um, street signs within indigenous communities and non-indigenous communities and in both cases how they reference the notion of indigeneity or indianness um, and so I, I was really interested in because these are one of those few places where you see this actually literally and physically marked out in the space itself so it's not only that it's a reflection of how people have those meaning-making, you know, relations and connections to a space and identity um, that cycles back and forth between space and identity. But but you see it actually being marked, right? right? People are putting physical metal signs; they're putting words on it that say something about who you are and who what that space is, and your in that relationship between those things. <clears throat> so I always uh, I, I've been sort of. Really fascinated by the way that these things that also just disappear, we don't really think about them. We use them as a set of navigational aids. But beyond that, we don't really pay much attention except when they're kind of, except when they're really odd or strange or somehow notable. Um, and these are the cases where I found notable Um so the project, this whole project really started with the critique of, um, before I moved into the sort of looking at how indigenous folks, most of this book is about indigenous sort of efforts to navigate settler colonial state and and, and reassert uh, native geographies. Um, but it began with a critique of, of uh, non-native usage of Indianness on these street signs. And I wanted to know, well, what are they doing? Right. So what is... What's the value? What's the purpose? What's the meaning that's being made when non-native communities are using native or, uh, or see, referencing native peoples on their street signs? Um, so I, I thought back and this is something I had, you know, and I wrote a little bit about this in one of my sort of um, in my little um, openings and uh, each chapter has these little openings. Um, these little vignettes. And I started talking about when when I grew up in uh, the Bay Area, in uh, a particular town, Santa Rosa, California, um, I spent a lot of time there, and uh, I remember this place called Indian Village. Um, Now, I was pretty well integrated in with Native community and knew the space, and there are reservations nearby, but this wasn't a Native space. Um, This was exactly... um, the those kind of places where the, the names are appropriated and you have this, this, this cluster of streets that are named after native peoples, um, but don't have any relationship to actual native communities. And there's no intent there for it to be other, anything other than a residential space. Um, so you have, you know, uh, Navajo street and Cherokee Avenue and Pomo trail and Cree court and Sioux drive and Seneca lane and so on and so forth. And this is something that, um, I found was pretty common throughout the nation. Once I, This was something that later on, once I got into my PhD program, I started thinking more about this and did some actual research and collected this across the nation to find how many of these things exist. And it turned out there are lots and lots of them um, and always in clusters. Um, and I really wanted to know, well, what's, what's this about? You know, what are they doing? Um, and I thought how this was a way of, of um, claiming Geography, claiming an identity, moving forward in this sort of trajectory of the the nation state and the American identity, and you know, multicultural sort of citizenship and all that. Um, And so, this was one ways in which you do that without having to really confront settler colonialism, dispossession, land loss, you know, tribal um, dispossession.
0: So, one of the things that you also look at here, and again, I want to say there are some really great photographs in the book, Um, lots of great pictures where you demonstrate this um, is how different tribal communities approach signage in different ways to disrupt colonialism or as a means of um, asserting their own spaces. Could you explain that a little bit? It's hard, you know, without being able to see the pictures, but I think you can kind of describe what you've seen, the different things that you've seen.
1: Yeah. And this is where I think also having the, the comparison of the two chapters. So this, this chapter where I talk about the, um, Tribal communities uses the first chapter because I really wanted to establish, okay, what does this look like in tribal communities? Because um, the the list that I just gave you of the different kinds of street names that you find in these white communities is is very abstracted. It's not not geographically specific. It's you know it has these cultural items. You'll see teepees. You'll see tomahawk listed. You know, it's you have all these really problematic sort of tropes and, and imageries that you that get sort of clustered together and and no. You know, logical way necessarily, um, and this was very different. So when I compared that and I looked at, and this in this book, I look at five different um, tribal communities that that have, in some way, explicitly taking on taken on um, street signage as as a project, um, with greater and lesser degrees of intentionality. And so I don't actually dig too much into how much they thought about what they were doing and what their intentional intentions were were sometimes that's not documented it's hard to find out some of it was so far back in the past that you there isn't really a, a good record or memory of how and why but nevertheless the outcome is really interesting so you have <clears throat> um, examples where folks are not listing these really abstracted indian um, names but they're using very culturally geographically and tribally specific markers which makes sense it doesn't it's not surprising, and yet when you see them together, you realize how starkly contrasted they are in the kind of work that they do so here in or in Oregon, for example, on the ground round um, confederated tribes of ground Round, they use a combination of signs where they have um, English um, words, and then they have a second sign which is um, in Chinahuahua, which is the language they Um, have um, continued with and then they have it and they have it spelt out in the international phonetic alphabet. So it's spelled out in the way that they use um, to write their, their language. Um, And so you have these dual signs where folks and they have a, you know, this reflects their really strong effort to reintroduce and re strengthen language use in their community. And it's something that you see in their schools and, um, and and, in a variety of projects and naming projects were, were, are, are, first on that list in some ways, both the streets, but also the, whether it be elder housing or community housing, the school, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and this was just one. So I had, I picked these five mostly because I wanted to look at the different, the different approaches that tribes used, all of which I thought were in some ways, um, examples of disruption of, of, um, other ways of marking those lands. Um, but you know, again, let more or less, um, intentional in some cases so um, in Dresslerville the Dresslerville community in uh, western Nevada for example they use the Washu language uh, and they put that first and then they put English below it in in parentheses which I always think is really interesting when you put something below in parentheses it's sort of a just in case you don't know what this means here's a little help you know to to get this along but what happens is interesting is that when you map it then um, as opposed to uh, Grand Ron, for example, when you map the Washu street names, it shows up in the Washu language, right? Because that's the primary, the first one listed. Whereas in Grand Ron, the 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 English ones will end up being first. Um, there's a number of reasons why this might happen, but um, but those are sort of the variations that I saw. Some a couple of the variations that I saw um, up in Musqueam and, and Vancouver, B.C. Um, they uh, basically write out in the hennkm language um, or a tr- uh, sort of a, a, uh, an approximation of that um, but they don't give you any translation whatsoever they give you a, a, a phonetic alphabet uh, transliteration which tells you how to pronounce it but they don't tell it doesn't tell you what it, what it means or what it says which I thought is I thought that was one of the more sort of dramatic um, examples um,
0: were you able to gauge any? non-indigenous reactions to these types of signs when you were out and about in, in some of these areas
1: not a, not a ton um, you get you can find things here and there posted online where people have encountered them um, some of them are just some folks are just I think usually people are really fascinated and and sort of excited by it they're like wow what is this because it marks and this is precisely why I think this is such a powerful project because when they, when they counter it and they're sort of they're they're made strange by it right the land and then their own identity is made strange they don't know how to encounter or engage this this name this word they realize they're in a different kind of space um and it's not that that space wasn't wouldn't have been there if it was in english but it's there it's marked and now they're confronted with it and you'll see people being very excited like wow this is you know this is a different kind of place and wow this is amazing and um and they're sort of you know intrigued by it um I think that's in um, in the Eastern Band Cherokee and Cherokee, North Carolina. They I, because they they rely a lot on tourism. I feel like you know, that becomes a really fundamental part of how they actually sell this as a you know as a cultural immersion experience. And so people see the the Cherokee syllabary, which doesn't look like um, unlike all these other ones that I've talked about. It doesn't use a Latin orthography. It doesn't look like. It, letters like an A and a B and a C that we would, in English-speaking countries, would recognize. Um, so it looks like this other, I mean, it kind of resembles it in some some fashion, but it looks very different. And so you can't help but see that and know that you're encountering a sort of a different, a different geography.
0: Now, in addition to some of the ways that Indigenous nations use Signage to mark space. How else do they mark space within settler societies and how have different settler entities, for example, local, state, national governments, how have they responded to these acts?
1: Um, I well, One is I don't know all the ways that this is, happens, but uh, w- I point to at least one that I kind of I thought was interesting that kind of connects. And I was trying not to stray too far away from this. These sign pieces um, but one of the connected examples that I saw was um, license plates. Um, and I noticed uh, I have an image from the Northern Cheyenne um, license plate, but there are also examples from other places that are tribally issued license plates um, are becoming more and more common. And this is I think this is also reflecting of the ways in which street naming and all this is also becoming more and more common as tribes are. Um, having more and more control and extension of their infrastructure, you know, everything from housing to whether it be gaming or just, you know, healthcare and whatever and building these streets. And then there, ha- there are things they have to name. Right? Um, and then this, this license plate thing is also really interesting because it's an extension of the, the naming of streets and well, what are on the streets? There Are these cars? And then how do you mark the cars that are on the streets? Mm-hmm. Well, you use plates, Um, and so the tribes are issuing their own, their own plates and they often will reflect in the same way that the, that the names on the streets reflect their Mm -hmm. identity, right? I mean, it's, you know, the symbols, the imagery, um, the the terms or words that they'll use, um, will show up on those plates. Um, and so if you look at the Northern Cheyenne example, for example, they have imagery of little wolf and dull knife who are two key figures in their return to their lands, right? They sort of left and returned and explicitly said, we're going back to our homes. You know, this was a reclamation project. And so for them to be on those license plates, right, a key part of their identity. Uh, They also have important geographic sites on there. Um, They have directions and colors. So all these very spatially oriented um, markers and symbols that are very prominent on their sign um and again it's another way which you define that relationship to land and you're sort of the the meaning making between identity and space um which is doubly i think important in tribal communities right, right. In, a, in a settler colonial context um and then maybe even also doubly important as you move around and you have that mobility right you're you're moving from one part of the of uh, the world to another and sometimes you're going into those places that don't recognize and that's that tension that you're yeah. asking about how our how are the responses um i think it's it's in some ways fortunate that you know through legal processes um there's been space made available for this to happen but it hasn't come just without any tension so um you know the potawatomi originally were sort of being arrested for having the illegal plates mm. right that marking you know marking their, their cars in an illegal and unrecognized fashion right this is they're, you know, in a sense, they their plates and they're driving around and they're bringing that that geography with them it made them illegible to the to the state, right? So they would be subject to arrest. Um, and so this is a way in which the the tension shows that there's this overlap, there's this resistance to the overlap of spaces. There can only be one space. Is it is it a state le- a state license mm-hmm. or not? Right? And this is the only viable. You know, and, and now you're starting to see that sort of open up um, through cases like that one. Uh, the Cherokee negotiated a compact with the state of Oklahoma explicitly. So this is kind of like, I feel like this parallels the gaming oh, trajectory where originally it just kind of hops in. It happens and then there's some battle and then there's these sort of agreements that get made and there's these compromises. Um, and so this is the way that many tribes sort of open up these spaces to sort of expand mm-hmm. their ability to sort of, assert and, and mark their space and to reclaim those those, those submerged uh, geographies.
0: You know, that's interesting. And, I, and, you know, I kind of want to go back a little bit to the settler practice of using Indian tribal names and cultural references, whether they're, you know, real or they're imagined, because, you know, you talk about indigenous nations using indigenous markers in their space, but then you talk about largely white societies also using Indian names and naming practices in their spaces. So can you talk about how that I mean it might seem sort of counterintuitive to some people but if you connect it with settler colonialism and you know what is trying to be accomplished by settler use of Indian tribal names can you can you talk about that a little bit because I can see that might be sort of confusing <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I should distinguish here, too, because um, there are two different ways in which namings can take place, right? Um, and so I've been really focused on those namings that are intentional and explicit and that are, happen usually much later down mm-hmm. historically, as opposed to that maybe carryover, like place names. So folks might say, well, what about, you know, the Mississippi River, right? Well, that's a name that's a carryover, mm-hmm. right? That's, that was something that was, that was um, transformed and utilized and it just sort of carried on. Um, but I was, but I'm really thinking about, excuse me, those those names that were much more intentional that were mm-hmm. that came later, um, because I feel like those were moments you did that those kind of names didn't have to take place. And so, to your question, like why, why, why would that happen, and what's the sort of purpose? Um, I would say there's a couple things that are at work, um, and lots of folks have talked about this. Um, Mary Louise Pratt has talked about this as anti-conquest and Rosaldo has talked about this as an imperialist nostalgia. Uh, Phil Deloria talks about this as Indian play, and okay. all these as ways of sort of creating an identity um, for those settler colonial mm-hmm. subjects, right? How do you reconcile that um, that process? Um, and how do you claim a land that you don't have really a sustained relationship with? Um, and and i think in the in the context of the us it actually makes sense as well in terms of trying to narrate native people as another ethnic group or an immigrant peoples or parallel to immigrant peoples who were who are brought into okay. the fold right um, it's a way for me uh, I, I think of them also as these uh, as a way of Um, creating this kind of mythical ancestry Mm. right and you see this throughout time in lots of ways uh, Phil Deloria talks about you know the Boston Tea Party as being this moment in which you sort of utilize Indianness to sort of claim an indigeneity that really is not it's really settler colonialism it's a settler colonial identity but trying to make that separation distinction between themselves and the British Um, and so you generate this sort of mythical ancestor that this was the early america and then now there's the different america it's morphed into and so where are the sort of mythical and ante- descendants of of those those original americans so uh, native peoples become americans by sort of in this weird sort of anachronistic way you kind of go back in time and make them proto-americans hmm. um it's also a way that you you don't you know you you displace them from any specific place though Right, so you can incorporate all these folks in in the way that I described the street names, they have lots of folks kind of piled together that don't have any
0: mm-hmm.
1: connection, uh, which then makes an abstraction that doesn't have any particular claim to any specific space. And that's really vital for Native peoples, right? is like we are from this right. place. This is where we are from, this is where we belong, we're not going it's, to, it's really difficult to then move and then be, be native to a place that you're not, that you don't have these long-standing relationships and understandings of over generations mm-hmm. and millennia um, that you foster, you know, and it, it takes a long time and so that you have to re, re-begin that, reboot that process when you're relocated. Um, so I think, and this is also, I think, just fits really well with uh, these, these uses of names uh, with just abs- the abstraction of citizens and of inhabitants of this mm-hmm. of this nation, like we're all supposed to be abstracted citizens, we're not supposed to be marked in these particular ways, precisely because that that attaches to particular claims, in this case, land claims. So I think when the, when when settler colonial uh, folks were arriving, they, or settler colonial colonists were arriving, you know, they were trying to also. Mark the space in the way that made sense to them, that reflected them, right? They were using, you know, English names. They were trying to, in a sense, recreate those spaces that were there before. Um, So, and and at the same time, I think there's also an effort of folks who really think, yeah, we want to mark that and we want to celebrate Native people in the same way that I think this is a parallel with mascots, Mm. um, that we want to celebrate folks and we want to mark streets with them in um, this kind of anti-colonial, anti-conquest um, maneuver. But I, th- I mark this as sort of a, not a really a genuine process. It's a rhetorical uh, move, but doesn't really have any geographic or political or economic sort mm-hmm. of weight behind it. It becomes this really easy sort of multicultural incorporation where we're just, we're celebrating all peoples and including native peoples, but you don't have to actually confront Um, Dispossession. You don't have to confront sovereignty at all. You don't have to actually confront that. These places typically are heavily white communities, and so how did that be? How did that become? It wasn't just by accident. It was by displacement and settling, and and sort of moving forward. That.
0: Well, and you tell a very compelling story that sort of touches on several of these issues that you talk about, and that's the commemoration of Kiowa figure. Satante, both in a Kansas town that is named after him and by his descendants. So can you describe these events and the relationships between those involved in them and how you evaluate the situation in terms of your arguments in the book? Because I think it really speaks to some of those issues that you were just uh, discussing.
1: Yeah. And so this is a complicated one. So the town, so I first got interested in this town. So the town is called Satanta in Southwest Kansas. And this is one of those towns that um, has basically all the street names, or nearly all of them, at this point, um, are named after are, are named using Indian names, you know, tribal names, you know, Kiowa or you know, Sioux, or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and so that's where I first was interested because I was, as I was tracking the proliferation, I was also trying to figure out, well, where did this begin? How did this start? And you know, as far as I can tell, this seems to be the earliest, um, the earliest of these, cl- you know, big clusters. And so I was fascinated because it was both the street names. It was this one was this town was built in 1912 by the Santa Fe Railroad. So it was just sort of whole cloth plopped down in the in the <laughs> plains of uh, Kansas. And then they, but they also named it Setanta, which was the the Anglicization of um, Setiante, which is the Kiowa warrior that they named named it after. Um, and so I, when I found out they had the name, they had the streets, I. I started looking, and they it turned out they also had this ceremony. Um, so every year since 1958, they have crowned a chief and princess at Dayante. Um And they go through this really elaborate sort of process. It's kind of the, probably the biggest thing that happens in this mm-hmm. really small agricultural town. Okay. People return. You know, generations return from wherever they're from you know, or wherever they've gone off to if they've left or if they're just nearby. They return. Um, and these high school seniors and juniors come together and they, they basically hand over um, this title and this crown from the outgoing to the incoming. And so I went there really sort of expecting this as a, as a, entirely as a um, exercising critique and sort of looking at the plain, plain Indian action Mm -hmm. uh, activities that were going on and sort of thinking about this in terms of space, how it's just a a claims over the land and how they, as I mentioned, the mythical ancestor really becomes literally like played out and perform performed in this, in this location. Um, What happened though was a little more interesting than that. And I, I, I'm glad it happened in this way because it kept me from having an overly simple um, critique or, or, Explanation is be- and, and this is because um, the the descendants of Tiantai sometimes will show up, right? They're invited always, and they will come, and they will sometimes participate in these activities. They will usually have an add-on of their own that they do, um, separate from the the, you know, the the ceremonial stuff that's happening as part of the parade and all that. Um, but they'll come and participate. And so I had a chance to meet them and then also to travel. And once when I met them the first time, they, they invited me to come to their power. So they also have a descendant's power for Satayante. And so mm. I thought immediately this will be really fascinating, right, to, to have an opportunity to sort of compare these two. Yeah. What kinds of performance and activity and ceremony did they each conduct in relation to this this figure that are both being Poised as a descendant one one literal and one more figurative and mythical mm-hmm. um, and then also how does that sort of reflect their notions of indigenous geographies and spaces in different ways um, and so I did I was able to go and talk with and I've talked with them over the years and i, I went to their powwow this descendants powwow and I talked with them a lot about this and I asked them about this the satanta version of it and um and and I won't say too much other than to say what what I was what I was sort of interested in was that there was this interesting relationship that I actually built in friendship that had been built up between them in a way that I was sort of not expecting. Um, not that there are not you know, tensions and I didn't interview everybody mm-hmm. and I didn't talk to, you know, I wasn't able to get the full breadth, but just getting a sense of the ways in which there's this sort of at least uneasy um, relationship and friendship that's been built for a number of reasons, whether it be because the, the, the town residents paid for a, um, for headstone um, whether it be because they've just had this sort of ongoing honoring of this this really important figure in Kiowa um, history and culture Um, but I came away realizing that this actually provided a really interesting opportunity and possibility of engagement that I wasn't seeing possible in those other places where there's just street names. And the residents that I've come across there, they, they're they always curious about it, but they don't have any relationship. They don't have any opportunity for engagement with, with Native peoples in those spaces or about those spaces. Uh, whereas here, there was this ritual revisiting, which provided a annual opportunity to sort of have this discussion and to figure out what well, does this all mean? How do we sort of move forward together in, in, in different ways that might not just reproduce settler colonial space and segmented or sort of um, confined indigenous you know space? So I, I came away actually from that being far more optimistic about the sort of weird configuration of playing Indian and street signage mm-hmm. and naming it in a way that I was not expecting. And so that, I think that provided a nice model for me to think more carefully about uh, qu- too quickly jumping just to critique and mm-hmm. seeing what those, po- those moments of possibility were. Um, so, you know, where this, where that goes is still up for, you know, up for uh, grabs, I guess, you know, but, um, Hopefully this book, which I've sent to everybody I think out there, so will help uh, jumpstart some some new discussions. Uh, so.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I also wanted to talk about um, your discussion of art in the book. So, you know, one of the really interesting aspects of the book is your examination of how Native artists – use their craft to contest settler colonialism and assert a native presence in North America. And I will again say, the book has great photographs. And there are some really beautiful color photographs that you use as examples in this regard. So our listeners definitely need to go get a copy um, so they can see them too. But some that really struck me, and there are many in there, but the, the ones that you know, struck a personal chord with me were those of Jean Quick to see Smith, who created a series of maps that you include in the book. So can you talk a little bit about these images and explain some of her work as it relates to your book?
1: Yeah, I will do my best, and this is partly why it was so important to have these color images. As you know, yeah. um, trying to describe some of these is is not an easy job. No. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and so, partly why no, it's okay. um, This is why the color is so important. It's it's so vital to be able to kind of take a look at these and mm-hmm. really see the sort of the, all the nuance and the complexity. Um, f- so yeah, I the last two chapters are both really focused on art and artists, um, and there's and I've split them because one the one that that you're drawing my our attention to here um, with Quick to see Smith, um, she's using maps, and so that first the, that that first set of those art chapters are are centered on folks who are using maps. So very explicitly interested in questions of space and geography. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine or understand their work and their use of maps and not understand that they're talking about land. They're talking about geography. They're talking about space. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so her work is not, there's no exception at at least the pieces that I focus on. She has a pretty wide range of work, but um, in this piece or in the piece that I, I guess I would look at, um, which is named street names Two here. um, She has, uh, she's drawing on, Uh, another famous work from jasper johns who took just the basic states maps that you would see in any elementary school like you know those things that we used to have to at least in our Mm -hmm. my day you had to pull and roll down from the the, that that sheet that comes down along the wall Mm -hmm. and you could see all the multicolored states and we still use them with most maps if you look you know anywhere we still use this sort of red yellow blue green Mm -hmm. mapping sort of thing and so jasper johns you know, was the first to sort of come at this and just try to make it, because after a while you see it so often you don't see it anymore, right? Um, it just becomes sort of so mundane you don't pay attention. So Jasper John kind of makes it really messy and and makes you kind of look at it again and realize, well, what is that? And you're kind of engaging with this map in a new way because it's hard to recognize, but it's still recognizable. Um, and then what I like is that in this particular one that, uh, quick to see, Smith takes that same model but then renders it through an indigenous geography lens so um erases you know elements that are not you know names that are indigenous rooted in indigenous words you know drips the the map so that those state those state boundaries start to Mm -hmm, be erased mm -hmm. or washed away Um, and it's you know it's a kind of a process it's sort of in motion almost because the paint just drips down the the canvas um, and so there's this there's these layers of of mapping layers of sort of space that I, that she's kind of noting there so I, I actually did this with a class recently just had them look at this and asked them to analyze it and you know they're sort of looking at it and they're saying oh some of the names are gone and you know some they're so they're being erased and then they realize after you know a couple layers of reading which is exactly what she's asked us to do is to look at it in layers, to get closer, to get farther, mm-hmm. to sort of see the stuff that's hidden there. And, and this is a, again a parallel to that, those hidden indigenous geographies that exist underneath oh. the settler colonial space. Um, and you realize, well, the street, I mean, the, the state names that are still there are those ones that are, have these indigenous you know, origins. right? Mm-hmm. And so the ones that are gone are the ones that are clearly settler colonial names that are impo- imposed names from from Europe. Mm-hmm. right? Start to Recenter you sort of disrupt space and then recenter indigenous geographies just by this simple process of of naming and she also actually goes beyond the u s and you start to see some of the indigenous names from Canada, what is currently Canada and Mexico mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. well. Um, so she does this communication in layers and haunting that um, some folks have noted she 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 aims for a kind of a haunting sorry, go ahead.
0: <laughs> no, I was just gonna say you you look at um, different signage too that is you know that native artists are using to sort of show some of the same um, ideas and issues that quick to see smith looks at as well
1: Mm -hmm. you're meaning the next chapter and the next
0: sure yeah if you'd like to talk about those that'd be great
1: yeah um so this is i guess the example i would point to here um, in terms of the signs that do similar kind of work and this is where i move from those artists who are looking at maps to those artists who are doing really public installation artwork. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's the, the actual location and the placement of them also becomes part of this, this spatial question because they're in space, they're in lands, they're out in the world. You're encountering them as you're sort of circulating as opposed to artwork in the traditional sense, you, know, you have to go to a museum to find it, right? And then you have this engagement, whereas in these installation artworks, you know, public installation, the, the art comes to meet you where you are. Uh, and this gives you some really interesting opportunities to, um, you know, push engagements that wouldn't normally happen or weren't aren't expected by those who maybe are just passing by. Uh, and so the person that I, I think really sort of uh, encapsulates this best is Edgar Heap of Birds, who really puts together a lot of these pieces um, with, in, in conjunction with tribal communities um, in a number of ways but to, to mark places as indigenous space and to say very bluntly and it just looks like a very plain spine that might say stay off the grass it might say turn left here but in this case it says you know your host is <laughs> x tribe right? so mm-hmm. whether would be the right. Nangach in alaska or the here in you know ground round in here in oregon or whoever it is and it just so it gives you this very um, um Sort of a uh, uh, misleading sort of um, sense that this is just a normal normal, authoritative street sign and then suddenly you're confronted with this anti-colonial message, <laughs> uh, what he calls ins- yeah, insurgent so messages great. where you realize oh, okay, wait, I'm being hosted by somebody yeah. and then theoretically the question would be am I being a good guest, right? So if I'm being hosted, what, mm-hmm. what is my responsibility and role as a guest and this opens up the d- very discussion of settler-colonial context Um, So I really like his, I I really have been drawn to his work quite a bit because it was also serendipitous that he was, you know, using street signs and I had already been working on street signs and he's Mm -hmm. doing these public installations. It's clearly he's about this and he's, he's not, uh, he's not uh, shy to be very sort of in your face about the politics and the sort of indigeneity that's embedded in in his work. So, yeah. Mm
0: All right. So after, you know, discussing some of the specifics about the book, you know, the signage, the art, the festival, I wanted to circle back to a point that you make early in your writing about the mundane and the banality of settler colonialism as it relates to things like signs or naming practices so can you discuss this a bit more in terms of your project but also perhaps in broader terms as well you know what other mundane markers of settler colonialism do we encounter in our daily lives you know i'm thinking what are we walking around but not really seeing that sort of thing
1: Yeah. um, I think, I mean, I think there's probably lots of them and it's, this is what makes them so hard in some ways to find, right? They're so mundane that you, you don't see them. And um, I don't always know that I have great answers for this. Um, I think there are lots Mm -hmm. of ways in which mundane practices of settler colonialism happen. Right? So everything from just the way we talk about history or our historical trajectories, right? So our notions of what time and culture in this sort of in an, in an evolutionary sort of framework um, looks like. So I often in classes, I talk about to my students about this notion that um, some things are marked as back in time as opposed to existing or potentially viable as a as a present and future existing thing. So Um, You'll see this with projects that, for instance, go to the Amazon and they'll say, "Oh, look at these folks in there. It's like stepping back in time because they don't have computers. They're using bow and arrows. They have these, they're living in a sort of, um, in a very particular indigenous way. And that's, that's marked as falling outside of the historical trajectory of time, right? That at this time, Uh you should be at this particular location. And I think it becomes fairly mundane and normalized in the way that we sort of presume and link those things together. Um, and I talk a little bit about this in um, Quick to See Smith's piece, too, where there's this one that could be read very much as a reclamation of a past. And I say, no, this is this is very much about a present and a future just because it has these mm. sort of petroglyph type of figures doesn't mean that marks it as only existing in the past, that, as if those things can exist in 2018. Right. They may not have the same sort of breadth and commonality that they did or uh, but they but they can clearly exist and coexist in this moment. Um, I think one of the other things that I, a project, a sort of a side project that I've been involved with locally and with different constituencies around here is just those basic practices of acknowledgement of indigenous location, right? Of how do you reconcile and do you make any effort to sort of, Build those relationships and say, "Look, we are on, like in where I am, we are in Kalapuya lands, and what does that mean to have you know? Or can't, if we say that regularly, and then we think about how do you then not just say it and mean it and understand it, and then act upon it? I think it changes sort of just the everyday ways in which you engage with your your world around you if you're non-indigenous. Um, mm-hmm. So I think those things are kind of the, like mundane in the sense that it's just the frames by which we. Think about or don't think about or talk about or don't talk about um, what's around us. Um, I think Mm -hmm. about even in this sort of social justice action work stuff that people are doing sometimes that isn't doesn't extend far enough to to confront settler colonialism. Right, talking Mm -hmm. about freedoms and your rights. How do you do that in a way that also accounts for the settler colonial process and the dispossession and disempowerment of, of tribal peoples and and the sort of curtailment of sovereignty and i and i say this not to shut down a conversation around those social justice issues and rights but really to open it up right to really broaden it out and say let's really like open this up in a way that's that's meaningful and that can that you you're gonna miss and you're gonna you're gonna miss those sort of those um, early sort of injustices if you don't if you don't sort of attend to that
0: so those ideas sort of give me an idea of how, you know, students, activist scholars can sort of build upon mm-hmm. your work, particularly when you're looking at the mundane. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if there are any other future projects that you envision or that you hope might come out of this this framework and these ideas that you've proposed in
1: the book. Yeah. Again, this is this is where I'm, I'm curious to see where people take it to because um, yeah. I don't really know um, – you know, I and I think in the epilogue or the afterword, I just kind of I make some nods toward thinking about how language might figure into all of this. Um, this was a critique that I got from a colleague that I've always been sort of unsure about how to respond to, and I'm hoping someone else can take this on. Like, how does does? What's mm-hmm. the role that tribal languages play, and how does that? How crucial is that to sort of indigenous geographies? Does that curtail everything that I said? You know, does it does it undercut mm-hmm. it if if language, which is you know I think most people understand, is so central to identity and culture, and then I would argue probably also the the, the process of space making and, and geography. Then what happens when tribal languages are are not as as common and not as sort of productive as they are, it can be in many many communities. Um, So Mm -hmm. that might be a place where I would be interested to see how someone could sort of link that together and, you know, see where that goes. Um, You know, certainly the enhanced spatial awareness, you know, I'm doing a lot, like I mentioned, a lot of projects where we're rethinking about naming and how do you, how do you rename things when things are, up for renaming and the idea that things should always be up for renaming and what's the responsibility of potentially then taking that model to actively try to re- replace indigenous sort of naming. Um, so whether that be waterways, we're working on projects here or different waterways, we're utilizing indigenous names for them in the ways that they want to name them. And so sort of, sort of making that, uh, Process become normative with when you're dealing with you know a, a variety of federal and local and county and city agencies and universities and what have you. So I think mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see how that then plays out in the actual implementation of it as you try to expand out. Because I don't think, uh, well, I know that indigenous space isn't confined to reservation land. So what happens when it expands out to? the original territories, the lands that are actually claimed and thought of as indigenous lands for any particular people. So what happens when you try to, you know, you see some of this with um, co-management of forestry and other kinds of places, other kinds of um, things Mm -hmm. like that. But how does that actually happen? What are the protocols and what are the steps and what are the actual material and material sort of movements that have to take place for that to happen? So I think I'd like to see the implementation as as, as well
0: before I let you go, because you've been very kind to speak with me for almost an hour. Um, I would love to know more about what you're working on for your next project.
1: So, okay. So uh, this, one of the projects I'm working on, which is connected to the artwork that I've been um, really interested in is uh, really came out of a, a talk series that we had here where I was able to, after I give a talk about my book, one of the people I've collaborated with from a local tribe, Approached me and really wanted to talk more about how they are um, extending their public installation artwork, um, and they're they're finding that they're doing more and more um, into places not just around them but some of their traditional locations that are now suburbs, but also in the urban spaces like the city of Portland. And they've asked you know asked me basically to help them think about like well one is how many pieces are out there. What are people thinking about? How are they thinking through what they're putting out there and the way that they're producing it? How are they making the transition from work that was more personal to things that are now intentionally supposed to be more public? Um, and also how are they going to think through this for their own protocols about what, you know, do, how, what kind of decisions should they make as, as a tribe around what what pieces should go out and why and what control should they have or not have over, over that, that work? Um and so this is really interesting for me because it gives me a chance to see what's being done and sort of see how they're doing it here, what the thought process behind it in a way that I um, don't always get when when I'm sort of doing more of a survey across many, many artists and many, many pieces in different places um, to really dig in and hear sort of what are the thinking – what. Are, processes that are taking place what are the conversations that are taking place between the the tribal artists and other folks that are engaged they're engaged with and the constituents of the museums or the cities that they're they're having these conversations with Um, and then what is the tribe going to do about deciding how this moves forward so it doesn't become out of control um, or haphazard and not what they really wanted and and obviously for me also thinking through the ways in which this helps them to sort of mark their presence, not just where they are, but throughout those their traditional territories, um, which might facilitate even more effort for them to be able to, or opportunity for them to be able to, for example, fish in traditional places, eel in, in places that they haven't been you know, a long time, or have access to certain sort of plants and, and other sorts of materials that they've, they've used traditionally for a long, long, long time. Um, so that's one of the ones that i'm really excited about that's happening right now pretty early stages um i'm also looking at another um local uh, as far as i can tell mostly unknown um chicano and native college that was built very near where i am right now that seems to have gotten very little to no attention um and existed for several years and um I feel like there's a story there, and I don't know what the story is, but I've seen some photos, and I've seen some documents, and I'm really interested in, in digging into this and sort of hopefully finding something um, compelling to tell about this beyond just the another one of these cases where these colleges were created in the 70s, 60s and 70s. So, um, so this is a smaller project that I'm going to probably take, take on um, shortly. Um, currently, I'm also in the kind of – middle stages middle beginning stages of uh, a book called the people's guide to portland and beyond which is a um, an alternative kind of guide to the city which really focuses on gathering up sites and acts of social justice in the city uh, which requires community research and community guided sort of articulations of their geography and history um, so looking at both indigenous, important indigenous sites within the city or you know, sites of African American activism or LGBT or queer sort of um, confrontations in different ways. And so mapping this out and sort of having this guidebook that's specifically targeted to those, type, those types of um, histories and locations and activities. Um, so this is a collaborative project that I'm working on with a couple of colleagues. as so it's a it's a pretty big project, but uh, part of a bigger series of people people's guides on cities across the across the nation and actually across the globe in some in some cases. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot. It is. I'm 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 tired just thinking about it now.
0: <laughs> but you know, also lots of reasons for us to have you back in the
1: future. Absolutely. I'd when you
0: finish those future books.
1: Yes, I would love to do. Excellent.
0: That. Excellent. Well, Nache, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: It's my, pe- my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Nache Blue Barnes' book, Native Space, Geographic Strategies to Unsettle Settler Colonialism, is published by the Oregon State University Press.